This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start Talkin' Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to Talkin' Mule Deer. Uh, today, we've got two great guests. Uh, we have our president and CEO, Miles Moretti of the Mule Deer Foundation. And we also have Jim Heffelfinger, who many of you know works for the Arizona Game and Fish Department and is also chair of the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Mule Deer Working Group. Boy, that's, that's a mouthful, Jim. <laughs> Just call uh, him the deer nut. Yeah. That is. It's good to Jim, be here. Jim Deer, Dr. Mule Deer. We've got a lot of uh, different names for Jim. And and Miles, welcome back. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a very important product that's puts out every year. It's called the range-wide status of blacktail and mule deer. So Jim, uh, welcome. Why don't you give us a bit of an overview? And Miles, if you guys want to give us a short introduction of how we use this stuff, uh, we'll be off and running. Okay, good. Let me um, kick it off. And and uh, as Steve said, I work for Arizona Game Fish Department. I'm the wildlife science coordinator there. But uh, for 20 years, I've been involved in this mule deer working group that's sponsored by the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. And the working group was assembled back in 90 in 1998. And, and that was because that was at the tail end of uh, a range wide mule deer, black tailed deer decline. And a lot of the Western agencies, a lot of people that like mule deer and black tailed deer were concerned about not seeing as many deer around as they used to. And so certain, certainly something was going around. And so they they assembled uh, one representative, one mule deer expert from each of, now it's 24 Western states and Canadian provinces and territories, and, and put those representatives together in a room uh, and formed the mule deer working group. And that working group was initially put together to, to look at things that were affecting mule deer and black-tailed deer populations throughout the West. and and see if we could uh, drill down and, and try to determine what was causing this, what seemed like a west-wide decline in, in these populations. And so we started working on a lot of things at that time. And, and we have a, a website, which will be uh, included in the, the show notes, I'm sure, mealdeerworkinggroup.com, where we've got a lot of the products that we produce. And we started looking at all the things that affect deer populations. And um, the spoiler alert, we, we eventually realized that there wasn't one thing causing west-wide declines in all these populations, but just the fact that deer populations throughout the west increase and decrease in different geographic areas at different times, and you, you'll get a series of droughts in the southwest, and the southwest desert populations decrease for a series of years, and then they come back, and then you'll get some harsh winters in the, in the Rocky Mountain states, and you'll get those populations decrease because of winter kill. But in the 90s, just by happenstance, we had a lot of different things affecting populations, but they're all kind of synchronized just really by chance more than anything else. And, and that's, what, that's what elicited all this concern about deer populations throughout the West. And so eventually most of the populations of, of, uh, of mule deer and black-tailed deer have recovered, not to the original levels, but certainly to the point where they're not declining. And, and we can talk about that today. But the Mule Deer Working Group itself has stayed together for those 20 years because even when we got to a point where all these populations weren't declining like they were in the 90s, there was a lot of good conservation work that, that could be done and a lot of good things that can be done from having an expert from all of these different wildlife management agencies throughout the West working together and talking about common interests and common problems and looking at solutions together that uh, that could benefit a lot of agencies instead of us all working in our little silos and working on only our deer population and, and not considering uh, other deer populations. So the working group for the last 20 years has really increased communication among biologists to talk about these issues, but also provides a lot of information to the public about um, the science behind conservation and management and what's happening with deer and deer populations, and also to uh, providing some good scientific information to the the decision makers and the administrators and the directors within those agencies. And so we've been pretty successful in pulling people together and working together on, on uh, common mule deer um, issues. And Jim, that's not just for the state biologists. Um, you include federal, your federal land management agency partners. Actually, uh, we get some vets in there. We actually bring, you know, that's how I think I originally met Miles uh, was through the mule deer working group. We, we definitely have the nonprofit sector, and, you know, 
I, I vaguely remember Jim and I can't remember what year it was, but we talked about what's the most requested piece of information that the state deer biologists get. And it was, how are our deer doing? And I think that's what the impetus was that led to this range wide status report. And, and miles, if you want to weigh in on, you know, at least in your tenure at MDF, how important that is for, for our members and for the people that reach out to you. Well, yeah, thank you. And it's great to be here today. And, you know, the mule deer working group has been really important for MDF. And, and even though we're not an official member of the group, we're, we're heavily involved at each meeting. In fact, we host a meeting in, in the winter at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. And, and those of you that read the MDF magazine, the fact sheet that we have in every magazine is produced by the mule deer working group. But this, what we're talking about today, the status report, yeah, I can tell when hunting season's getting close because I start getting calls from hunters. I start getting calls from reporters and they're saying, how many deer are in Colorado? How many deer are in Arizona? How many deer, what, what are the deer doing in Montana? And I can go to this status report and give them a, just a quick s- snapshot of what hap- what that deer population looks like in the past year. And so it's, it's, really, it's really enabled us to help in the PR type and, and get information out to people. But the other thing is, is they, they'll tell you whether a deer herd's declining, stable, uh, increasing, and that can out also help us focus where we do our work, our habitat work, or work on transportation corridors, migration corridors. It really helps us to start focusing because we can't be everywhere and all things to everybody. So it's a great, great tool for us in, in those couple ways. Yeah. And, and if you guys remember, Jim, that uh, when we talked about this, I brought the question up is how does the magazine, the popular hunting magazines, they put out a forecast every year. And I just asked everyone, where are they getting that? Because it doesn't jive with what I, when I talk to those members of the mule deer working group, sometimes there seems to be a disconnect. And I think that uh, for the sake of this conversation, conversation and for our our listeners and our members in the public who looks at this document this is really looking at a couple of things it looks at the biology and it looks at how we make estimates and what drives things like harvest settings seasons and other things but it really is not the document to say we've got 6418.3 deer in this unit <laughs> so um it's it's a very useful one and you know with that jim why don't we just dive right into the range-wide status why don't you give us the thirty thousand foot overview of how things look this year and, and you know how you feel that we're going Sure. Yeah. Um, we know we're starting to talk about this, this status report and, and maybe I should back up and, and mention the, where that originated when the group 10 years ago was getting these kind of requests that, that Steve, you're talking about. Um, but you, and people would ask how are mule deer doing in the West? And you can't answer that um, in one broad brush on how they're doing because there's so many different herds and they're all doing, like I mentioned before, so many different things. It's like asking a kindergarten teacher, how are your students doing? You know, some are sitting in the corner picking their nose and some are excelling and doing everything great. And so they're really the only way to get a good feel for what's going on with, with these different jurisdictions is, is to just break them out and have the expert in that state or province or territory write a paragraph or three paragraphs and include a graph that shows some trends in, in some data in that population. And really only by then kind of just spending the time to look through all of these different states and provinces and jurisdictions can you start to get a feel for how things are going. So unfortunately, there's no one paragraph you can read and figure out how how um, some of these these deer herds are doing in these jurisdictions. But this document's been really valuable in, in giving someone a, a good view of of the status of mule deer and black-tailed deer in the, in the West. And in the 90s, and when the mule deer working group was formed, we were all talking about the mule deer decline, the mule deer decline, and you still will see magazine articles and people talking about declining mule deer and, and mule deer are, are, um, are still declining. And, and really the truth is in most jurisdictions, they're not declining anymore. They're stable, they're increasing. In almost every single case, uh, they're below the population objective. They're below where agencies and stakeholders would really like to see them. But there's only really a few uh, handful of jurisdictions where they're, they're still declining. Our populations have recovered somewhat and have stabilized, some of them still increasing, a few of them decreasing. 
But really, we don't have this universal west-wide Mueller decline that we were talking about 20 years ago. And that's really a testament to the work and the focus on mule deer. So, Jim, you said a couple of things there. From my count, looking at the chart that's in this, there's about uh, six population or six states that say they're increasing, seven that are stable, six that say there's some level of decline, and one that splits it out. So, you know, it is a, it is a heck of a lot better than it was, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, you talked about objectives, whether it's a herd objective or a population objective. And I think what folks need to understand is sometimes it's not carrying capacity or K that determines what that objective is. That's the biological max that habitats can support, but that oftentimes is not what the estimated population is or what we're trying to manage for. Why don't you talk about that? And I know mm -hmm. Miles, you can weigh in on that having been a, a manager in a state for quite some time, because that's a, a very important point to make is that estimated population sometimes is going to vary from what population objectives are. Yeah, Kansas is a great example of that. If you read their uh, overview, um, they, they mention in there that their population goals are really to minimize conflicts, minimize automobile accidents, and maximize uh, hunter opportunity and, and recreation around uh, deer. And so they, that, that really highlights this kind of balance between uh, maximizing the population, but not to the extent where there's some negative consequences. And the Eastern whitetail people deal with that all the time. Uh, a lot of our wide open public West habitat, um, that's not so much of an issue, but definitely w managers don't try to create as many deer as possible because at some point you're going to be harming the habitat. So it's a, it's a balance between habitat capacity and providing recreation, providing deer for people that don't hunt people. Everybody likes to go, camping or hiking um, really likes to see deer. It, it really enriches their experience. So we manage deer for everybody, not just for deer tags, but but certainly recreational opportunity has to be balanced with, with the habitat quality. Well, and your folks in suburban Salt Lake don't like a high deer number because they're getting in everyone's gardens, uh, you know, causing havoc on golf courses and whatnot. And, you know, it's then we get into that urban deer issue. Yeah, hey Steve, you know, uh, uh, kind of from my days as as a uh, working thirty years with Division of Wildlife in Utah, you know, I mean, if we we had a, a commission meeting where we were talking about uh, management for cougars or bears, the audience stood up and said we were the greatest wildlife managers in the world. We'd get to deer and elk management, and the same guys would stand up and say we were the worst biologists and managers in the world. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. And and so, you know, uh, the the perception of what is actually going on with the deer herd and, and what the public uh, views and then trying to to mix that in with hunting regulations whether the state it's it's looking for trophy quality or or maximizing opportunity there's a whole bunch of things that go into the into the mix of all this but but overall you know these these numbers are are trends and and objectives they're not the actual deer population and i think uh jim can speak to that a little bit better but you know i think there's a big misperception among the public of of what some of these numbers mean yeah, and I'd, I'd like to turn to Jody on that, if I could, Miles. It's um, the fact that we need to learn to communicate and be clear about what we're trying to say is extremely important. You know, we can say population, but is that the objective, the herd size, uh, the social carrying capacity? You know, Jody, I don't know if you have a, have a thought on how we can do better um, communicating that to both our hunters and to the public, but I know I've learned through the years is you have to really understand how the words you use are understood by the people you're talking to. And, and, you know, we're horrible at that in the biology world that we can speak to each other, but we can't speak to the general public. I think that's, I mean, I think that's going to be the way in a lot of scientific technical situations. And, and unfortunately, I think particularly with, with wildlife populations, something that is a desired species by hunters and, and others, you are going to have um, difference of what their values are, of what, what they want to see or what their understanding of it is. And, and so I think the effort to get the information out there in a consistent way, the way that WAFA has been doing and, and 
to communicate and make understandable as they are through the fact sheets and others, how the many different variables, I think all of that goes into helping the public, the hunting public, the, the, the general public understand what your management objectives are. You know, the, the biggest challenge we have is if you are not being as, as upfront or, or letting people know and, and explaining. Um, but you're always going to have, you know, people saying, well, that's not what I see. I go out there and I don't see any deer at all. And, you know, and, and, and understanding range wide versus that particular population or, um, or, understanding just in general how your state agency is working on both the behalf of the hunters, but also obviously clearly by the animals themselves, that, that we need to be doing the right thing for the, the habitat, for the, the populations across the state. And uh, it may not be desirable to some people who are specifically impacted, but over time that works out. And these long-term range-wide assessments help to understand that, I think. Great. So getting back to the range-wide assessment, Jim, um, I think you told me that that we when we when you solicited input on this, you you were looking for three year averages. Um, so we're looking at trend data means how things are tracking through time. And we're also then taking making sure that we're not allowing one year to influence the direction of that line too much, which is why you add multiple years in. Um, so I think it's probably safe for us to say we have. We have a declined 50-year uh, a trend in mule deer, but the last few years have not been nearly as bad as it was 20 years ago. And um, if we just want to just, uh, Jim, I don't know if you wanted to speak on that a little bit, but I'd like to just jump in and start looking at some of these states and having a brief discussion about them. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point is talking about. We, we sat down and consciously talked about well, what's an increase and what's a decrease? Because you can have a population that declines for 20 years, and then the last two years it increases. So is that an increasing population? It is for the last two years or a long-term decreasing. And so we, we just decided for the purpose of this document that we would look at the last three years as a measure of what it's been doing most recently. But, but all of these assessments include this long-term information so everybody can look for themselves and see where the population's been and where it's at. Uh, now and and when we talk about ob objectives, the neat thing about the status document is it's not just status of the population, but most of the agencies have additional information in there about how they set their objectives. Some agencies set objectives to be to maintain themselves within a certain buck to doe ratio, and and may change permits based on where the fawn to doe ratio is because that's the recruitment into the population, and so or it might be population objectives of the number of deer uh, estimated in the population from a model. But you get to read through and see how different agencies use different benchmarks for their management, and in some cases, an agency may change what the population objective is, but. Normally, that's done in, a, in a, an open, uh, transparent public process where you get stakeholders together and you talk about, here's the data, here's where the population objective is. And the population objective, in some cases, may have been set a couple decades ago, and it may be at an unreasonably high level where we don't want that many deer in a particular state or in a particular unit because that would be too many. And so sometimes people are suspicious of agencies changing objectives. Uh, like they're trying to cook the books, but but it's it's normally done with full public involvement, and it's it's done just to keep maintaining kind of an adaptive management process where you just keep improving your management as you as you gain more information. Hey, Steve, real quick, if I could interject one point, um, you know, especially you know our hunters have become enamored with with big bucks, and you know we know people are naming these deer and taking photos of them and. And, you know, with trail cams and everything. And, you know, the interesting thing is that, um, you know, g getting away from a little bit from the status, but, you know, if you're if you're managing for a trophy quality unit, one of the things that I've observed is, you know, if you set a number, X number of bucks uh, on a unit that you want, uh, and, but many of these trophy units exceed that, you know, exceed that number. And if, as a manager, if you try to bring that number back down, uh, so you add some permits to the units, your 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 public goes crazy, you know. And uh, and so you know, and that's what a lot of people don't understand is some of these units to carry more bucks, you have to carry less does because there's a carrying capacity to the unit. So there's a lot of nuances that go into you know 
Um, again, coming back to whether a population is stable, it depends on you know what what your public kind of wants too. It really impacts the management of, of direction of of a state uh, deer biologist. Well, and I think with the advent of uh, chronic wasting disease and and the challenges that our managers are going to have to deal with um, uh, managing populations based on how CWD affects it, that's going to become even more important, Miles. I mean, I look at the numbers of males harvested in the population, you know, given a, a, a species that doesn't need a lot of males to put the uh, full amount of, of fawns on the landscape moving forward. We don't kill a lot of doe mule deer. And so, um, you know, all the other factors got to come into it. And, you know, from my count, we've got about 3.2 million mule deer um, in the States and over 500,000, uh, probably close to 750,000 blacktail deer. So, you know, we're looking at 400 or 4 million deer in the Western United States and, and including Alaska and Hawaii that uh, in the, the provinces in, in Canada. And I think that gives us ample opportunity for, uh, you know, some experimentation, but also to work out that variability on how to address these issues by region, by habitat, by state, and also, you know, by bringing all that stuff back to the mule deer working group, it allows us to learn from other states and then, you know, make better decisions because we talk to each other and we put these things together. So with that, um, let's just jump right into a few of these. Um, Jim, why don't we start with Arizona? You know, you know that one. I think you're the one that gave input into the range wide. How are things going on down there? Yeah, our, our deer population trends have been pretty classic when we talk about what's going on throughout the West. Throughout the 90s, we've, we have this decline. And some of the hunters will remember uh, in 1988 when Yellowstone was burning and, and the Mississippi River was drying up because of drought. That, that really, I think, triggered a lot of some of these um, declines throughout the West because starting in the early 90s, a lot of places like Arizona declined through the 90s. And then we got into the early 2000s, mid-2000s, and our population in Arizona started recovering. And so we've been on a 15-year long, slow increase in getting our deer populations back. And you talk to hunters out there that spend a lot of time in the same place, and, and they all agree I'm getting people come to me and saying, I'm seeing a lot more deer out there. And you know, me and my family um, sure are too. So you can see the effects of, of that 15-year increase. Now, the last couple of years, we've had a couple pretty dry years, and, and that increasing trend has bent down a little bit just in the last year or two. But, um, it, you know, it's not going to go up forever. But things in Arizona are looking pretty good with the long, slow, gradual uh, recovery from those low 1990s population levels. But again, like other states, we're not to the point where we're at population objective or, or how many deer we'd like to see on the landscape. We hope that still continues to recover. Great, and we've got in mule. Uh, we've got several projects uh, in, in Arizona, and two biologists that are working with Arizona Again and Fish. That some of those efforts in the 18A project and and a larger um, cooperative, collaborative conservation landscape conservation. Those habitat improvements are, are helping, are making a difference in some of these key units, aren't they? Yeah, we've been doing a ton of habitat work and, and that kind of money spent on the ground pays dividends for decades because you're just really improving the habitat rather than doing something that might only last for, for one year. And so we're doing a lot of active management. We decided a number of years ago that we were through with the what we call a custodial kind of uh, deer management where we just kind of sat by and watched it and measured it and prescribe deer tags to a more active management where we were going to get on the ground and start doing some habitat improvements. And in our two MDF biologists have been a huge part of that. And the MDF chapters have been a huge part of getting some of that good habitat work on the ground to, to help mule deer. Well, we would like to think, uh, Jim, that because we, you know, have two shared biologists down there, that's been the reason you've been able to turn it around, but we know we can't take all the credit. So. Yeah, just don't look at the timing of when they came on and the timing of the deer recovery. <laughs> All right. And we so, can claim that. Um, let's go to Colorado next. And the reason I say that is Colorado's got the most mule deer of any state. And there's been, you know, it, uh, it moved to a limited license draw for all deer tags in 1999. And we've been able to track how that's affected things. But they're often sure. criticized uh, tremendously by the public about how they manage their deer, where their deer herds are going. 
And from my estimation, you know, on the chart, it says they have an estimated 418,000 deer. And I think their objective in talking to Andy Holland in the past, I think is right around 600,000. So they are below objective, but they're going to be revisiting Mm -hmm. that. Um, What is interesting to me is the last few years, they have considered their, their population to be stable. Uh, they do have CWD. Mm-hmm. CWD was, you know, originated in Fort Collins area. It's been around in Colorado the longest. But what caught my eye is, you know, we've got some issues with the western part of the state and the declining herds over there. I know we spend a considerable amount of time on habitat projects over there, but the the eastern and central parts of Colorado seem to be doing okay. And Jody, you live down there. I know you can speak to some of this. And, and you know, I don't know uh, to our listeners out there, maybe we need to, you know, give Colorado a little bit more credit for what they've been able to do, given the number of people and the situations uh, that they've felt. But, you know, it's really interesting that um, we are seeing these migratory populations, not just in Colorado, but in other states, probably drive some of the declines more than some of the resident populations. Uh, are you reaching out to me? Yeah. I, at the, so here as a Colorado resident, obviously, I, I unfortunately live in some more suburban area and we've got lots of deer in, in many of these neighborhoods. But uh, statewide, yeah, the, the state has done a good job. And it's a it, as as Jim can probably attest to, it's a balancing act of opportunity and trophy potential. And and I think Colorado has tried to to dance that line in different units. And uh, I can tell you I was recently out scouting and we saw some really big bucks uh, recently out on the West Slope. And and so, you know, that that's a challenge because in some ways it makes uh, when you when you're trying to manage for larger animals, there are less hunters and, and it may be harder to draw a tag of those. But there's plenty of other units that uh, that you you have more opportunity that may not be a trophy management area. And I think that kind of tries to hit that balance of, of what hunters in the state are looking for. Yeah, Colorado statewide currently has about um, one buck for every three does, which for wide open public land in the West is is pretty incredible. They get good consistent fawn recruitment to keep their populations going, and they they're maintaining an, an older uh, age structure even if the population abundance isn't where they want it. They for the last ten years they have been stable. They've had stable deer populations for the te- last ten years, but half of the deer units are below population objective. And so they they would like to turn that up and and recover some of those deer for sure. Yeah, I mean, being able to manage for, you know, 30 bucks per 100 does is pretty phenomenal given some of the the harvest figures and and some of the habitat issues they've been facing there. So, um, so Miles, let's jump to Utah. Um, Why don't you, I mean, it's saying here we've got about 319,000 deer. Um, They state that their herds are in decline. So it is one of the states that, uh, that, although they've increased their buck to doe ratio, the overall population numbers are down. You know, Utah's kind of, since I spent, you know, my career working here, um, is really a tale of two states, uh, two areas within the state. The northern part of the state tends to get a lot more moisture and severe winters just just take a real toll on um on the deer population because there's because we built along the the foothills there's just not the winter range there used to be so you know when in a warm wet year uh, a mild winter they can rebound really quick they're very productive southern utah is very dry and when jim talked about the 90s um i was a regional supervisor in southeast utah and we went through 10 years of severe very severe drought and we had deer herds that were having like 20, 25 fawns per 100 does. And and that lack of moisture is what really dictates that. I mean, Utah has been super aggressive on their predator control. And, you know, people say, just kill all the predators and, and the deer will come back. It, it's got to be in, done with habitat. And a lot of the habitat work that Utah's doing, we're starting to see some results there. But uh, if it doesn't rain in southern Utah, we don't have deer in Utah. And uh, if we get that really, really hard winter in the north, they really suffer. But And then the south does well. You know, when we get all those monsoon rains coming up out of Arizona and stuff, um, that's that's when they do really well. And, and that's why Utah's had to go to a statewide limited entry general season hunt 
you have to apply and the number of tags were cut down. When I started with the state in uh, 1970, whenever it was, 76, um, you know, we had almost 200,000 deer hunters in the state of Utah. Now there's probably 75 to 80,000 deer hunters um, because the deer population had declined dramatically um, in those early days. And But, um, you know, I think the last report Utah had, um, their deer herd is increasing because they had gone through a little bit of a wet cycle. Uh, Steve, the last 10 years or so, the, the Utah population has been trending upward nicely, not, not outside the, the range, but, but a pretty nice trend upward. This last, 2019 was tough. It was a dry year and, and low recruitment, higher, higher mortality of the adults and, and the population really took a dip this last year. But I, I think in the last 10 years, I, I, I think we're starting to see that the benefit of the, all the tons of habitat work that have been done in that state. Um, really, really starting to show through. Yeah, that I mean, that's that's one thing. During during all this this last ten years, ten fifteen years, it it the habitat work I think has kept. I mean, Utah I think could have been really really struggling with the development we've had along the Wasatch Front and um, and some of the other issues. But uh, um, that habitat work has really slowed that. If there was it decline. Um, it's it's helping helping a lot here. So, Miles, what I was going to ask is is I believe that uh, Utah is getting ready to, to undertake. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. An effort to see if that population objective of 453,100 deer is still what they want to try to reach for. Um, and as as Jim mentioned in the beginning, you know these things are always done with public input. But you know, from your perspective, and given the success of the watershed initiative and all the habitat work, is that something that is, you know, possibly needs to be changed, or you know, what's your opinions on that? Well, I I you know it's it we it's been reduced over the years, and I think right now, um, you know, they're they're looking at it real close and and trying to determine because. You know, in Utah, with the general season um, management, you know, opportunity is limited. And I think they're they're trying to figure out where do we want to be. And, you know, with the habitat work that's going on, and um, I think, you know, they're looking at trying to get that, see that if that number needs to be adjusted up or down. Because, um, you know, like Jim said, we were going up for a while. And now just the last couple of years with this drought, this summer, we're very very dry we didn't have any rain in april and may and there are two wettest months of the year so you know that really impacts the fawn production so i think i think it's going to be they're going to have to wait and see what they see this fall and see how things did um, one good thing about utah and a lot of the other states is with the migration corridor initiatives there's i mean there's several thousand callers out here in utah on big game animals and so we're learning a lot more about adult survival fawn survival migration corridors where we can do additional habitat work uh highway crossings all those kind of things and that's happening across many states and so um there's a lot of new information coming in that's going to help the state wildlife agencies in making some of these management decisions I think that's a really good point because that has been obviously a huge push for Mule Deer Foundation, but but a number of our partners obviously in the states as well. And that information we've been talking about um, the boosts that SO three three six two gave the states, but we're just starting to get some of that data in, and we're we're only just starting to see where those those needs really are, and will make the biggest difference for the herds in the states. Steve, people are seeing those cool maps of the migration pathways, and, and those are really neat. But what is not talked about much is each one of those collars is also giving us survival information and, and other biological information that we haven't had before. And like Miles says, that all of that information is, is really, it's, it's already helping. Um, Brock McMillan and, and Randy Larson are, are working on some of that data and analyzing some of the data and, and some of us are on the email list to get that periodically, and it's it's really fantastic stuff that every other deer biologist would would die for. Well, what I love about that, Jim, is it gives you the uh, use and distribution information too, which we've been able to model through resource selection function and habitat suitability, and and basically figure out you know why animals are are choosing certain habitats over other habitats, and you know going out and trying to figure out. Are there places that we can improve conditions based on where we know deer are spending their time or not spending their time? 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's go up to Montana, my home state. Um, interesting when you read about Montana, um, they, they don't have a, from a population estimate, they don't really look at the world that way. They look at it, uh, you know, based on their regions. And they, they basically have said that the deer on the western third of the state aren't doing that well. But the deer in the central and eastern part of the state where we have our prairie and our break habitats are actually stable and possibly increasing. But it does, you know, talk about the hard winters. Um, you know, we get winters where we'll get 10, 12, 15 foot of snow and it'll take out 60, 70 percent of the total population. And then, of course, we go through a recovery period. But they really use uh, uh, 102 trend transects to determine how their herds are doing. And then they, of course, use harvest data. And then they base their estimates on really using those and based on harvest data, you know, uh, and, and reporting from hunters, they can get a feel of how the populations are doing. Uh, from, a, from a personal perspective, I, I, I agree with everything that they talk about, but I, you know, given the large scale fires that we've had in the central and eastern part of the state that have really took out a lot of our good shrubberies, and other vegetation, I think that there, you know, there is a lot of room to grow there. And also um, CWD has been becoming very prevalent in Montana. And then third thing is the drought. So you combine hard winters, drought, you know, with disease and, and, and a lot of the other things. And you get, luckily we're a big enough state, but we also are a state that we manage for opportunity. There are only two draw deer units that are managed for trophy bucks in the state. The rest of the state is wide open. And so you get into this uh, debate and approach that, do we want to limit, you know, opportunity to, in order to manage for a larger, for a larger buck deer, or do we want to keep that opportunity going? We know that hunters dollars through license sales and other uh, excise tax is what really is the fundamental basis of providing funding for our agencies. So if you, and I know you guys have dealt with this in Arizona and Utah, if you reduce opportunity to increase quality, in this case, quality is determined by size of buck, you know, is that the right thing to do? Um, Montana, from, from my perspective, uh, needs to do a mule deer initiative similar to what other states have done and update a mule deer plan. And thankfully we have a, a colleague that has worked in both Nevada and Arizona um, that, that, that is, is listening and hopefully Brian will be able to work with us and, and, you know, get going on that track, but we're seeing tremendous amount of interest in, you know, the, the getting more habitat work done in the central and Eastern part of the state. And I know from the, the projects that we solicit and the focus that we're trying to give as a organization, you know, really, uh, putting some efforts into those areas that can, you know, uh, respond quickly and also that hunters use. I think it's like 80% of all the hunters in the state that hunt deer go to the central and eastern part of the state. So um, not that we're going to ever abandon deer in any part of the state, but we really are going to look at where we can have the best bang for our buck and and hopefully address some of those issues habitat-wise that, that are lurking out there. Yeah, there's no doubt that the North American model of wildlife conservation is is based on just allowing people to get out and, and hunt. And when you survey people, you find a majority of people, they just want to get out with their friends and family and get, get some venison in the freezer. So so agencies can't abandon that. But but most agencies do a pretty good job of providing other alternative opportunities, too, for for being out there longer with, with fewer people out in the field with you and a chance to hunt a population that's got a closer buck to doe ratio and a more mature buck uh, age structure. Well, the big controversy right now is, is, you know, you can get up to five doe tags in certain regions. And, you know, the, what they're trying to do is maintain that uh, balance between what the habitat can support, what the social carrying capacity is, and the growth of deer herds in recovery mode from, you know, pretty hard winters. And, you know, we, we oftentimes want to blame non-resident hunters. And I saw this last year on my hunt. They come in, they get all the tags that are available to them. They're here for a week and they harvest, they fill those tags. And a lot of times it's a lot of doe deer and a lot of young of the year deer. And, you know, people seem to think that that's something wrong with that. I don't, I, you know, 
I do think we might hunt some local regions a little bit too hard and, and particularly where there's uh, private land acting as sanctuary, the public land will get hit a little bit harder. But, you know, I, I think Montana is one of those uh, great opportunity states for, you know, Brian coming in for the state to look at it like they're doing with the elk and for MDF to get even more involved. See, if I could just one thing too, Montana probably hunts, Montana probably hunts in the rut more than any other state. Maybe I'm wrong. Jim could maybe correct me there, but it seemed like the they allow the hunt much longer uh, through the rut for bucks than, than a lot of other states that cut it off. Wyoming, you know, cuts uh, uh, mule deer hunting off the first of uh, at the end of October. Um, very, a lot of states don't allow you to hunt during the rut or very limited. So that that's kind of an issue sometimes too. Yeah, I was going to mention Steve and when Steve talking about doe harvest, one of the neat things about looking through this um, mule deer status document is that you can see what other agencies are doing and how other agencies are are managing and what their goals are. And and some places where we do have to manage deer populations within the capacity of the habitat, that includes doe harvest. And you'll see through time if a couple harsh winters come and knock that population, just total abundance down you'll see the agency then back way off on the doe tags because they want to allow that population to increase. And then as that population recovers and gets back up to near where it was, you'll see those doe tags being added back on. And, and you can, in some of these agencies, some of these states and provinces, you can see that in action through time of deer managers actually managing abundance with, with doe harvest or not doe harvest. All right. I want to talk about one last state before that we briefly touch on black-tailed deer, but it's Wyoming. And um, you know, Miles, you're from Wyoming. I've got a uh, family and consider, uh, you know, my home state anymore. And, you know, we also look at, they've got a tremendous amount of deer, but they're also uh, ground zero for the work on migration work and for sage grouse. So as we know, oftentimes there's a hundred percent overlap for what you do for mule deer and what can benefit sage grouse and, you know, reading their write up, um, you know, it looks like the mule deer herds have been decreasing the last three years. And, you know, they, they, they know they're below objective in many units. And uh, they've got a rolling, uh, I believe it's through their mule deer initiative, they revisit certain herds on a three or five year rotating basis around the state with their mule deer team. And so then they can make adjustments to population objectives and beef up habitat work and all that other thing. But you know, also having drawn a mule deer deer tag this year in Miles, I know you go hunting whitetails in Wyoming every year. Um, it really is a state that attracts a lot of attention from uh, non-residents or from people that want to put, you know, a high a high country or a prairie mule deer hunt on their, you know, pull it out of their bucket list and, and move it forward. And, and, and that's reflected uh, over the last five years by the number of applications we've seen come in and the number of points you need preference points you need to draw specific units so miles i don't know you grew up there you've talked about the good old days of mule deer if you want to weigh in on what you think's going on in wyoming and you know what the outlook is i know we invest a lot of time and money over a million dollars from the mule deer foundation in the last year into wyoming habitat issues yeah like i say i i always say i grew up in the golden age of mule deer hunting in southwest wyoming and and which was just incredible and and part of it was there was no other people hunting. <laughs> we were the only ones that were out in some of that country, you know. And so, but, you know, one of the things you got to remember about a state like Wyoming, Wyoming was extremely uh, one of the most dense populations of domestic sheep herds in the Western United States. And back when, when uh, you know, you could use poisons back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, there there wasn't a predator on the landscape. And and also, when a lot of people came to Wyoming uh, in the early days, there wasn't the amount of sagebrush that you see today. Um, there was more grasses. And, and so, you know, it was a perfect storm to explode that population into Wyoming, into one of the highest, um, you know, and Colorado kind of experienced the same thing. But over the last 20, 30 years, you know, Wyoming's been under a lot of pressure from increased populations, increased freeways, traffic, um, you know, energy development, all those things. And, and, and plus, you know, Wyoming, it can experience some pretty hard winters. And, and when you lose some of that quality habitat and some of that, 
um, they are under a lot more other stresses from other things. The, the seven or eight things that uh, the mule deer working group has identified as, as factors in mule deer, they're, they all happened in Wyoming. And, and just, you know, even though they have a low population, there's a lot of lot of things going on there, and and in addition to CWD is uh, you know second behind uh, Colorado in in the prevalence rates, and I think some of their units are even higher than Colorado. So you know there's there's a lot of issues there, but it's still pretty darn darn good hunting. Well, and and you know I I heard something long ago, Miles, and I don't think about it till I was out on a winter range. Just thank God for the Wyoming wind, because a lot of we wouldn't have the number of animals that we have in Wyoming if that wind wasn't keeping the snow clear on a lot of those winter ranges. So uh, there's a lot thrown at Wyoming, but, you know, but fortunately we're, we've got a great partner in the Wyoming game and fish and their mule deer team, Ian Tater, uh, Jill Randall and, and folks, and, you know, they're, they're addressing it through habitat. They're also addressing it through uh, getting folks involved with their regional mule deer initiatives. And um, I think, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, they probably have more mule deer research going on right now than any other state. So we're learning a tremendous amount um, about how to take information and figure out how to use it from what's coming out of Wyoming. I guess I never would have thought of the day when somebody was uh, blessing Wyoming's wind. <laughs> In mosquito season, you That's love true. it. <laughs> and... <laughs> Dan Thiel is the, uh, the the Wyoming rep on the, uh, the mule deer working group. And and if you read his uh, his update in the the status report, he talks about the, the Wyoming population being twenty eight percent below their statewide objective, with about a quarter of the herds um, that are at objective and three quarters of the herds below objective, but none of them currently above objective. They, that population's been declining for since nineteen ninety, with a couple upticks for three four years, in, including not long ago, just uh, two thousand thirteen to sixteen, um, it was increasing. And then the last three years um, decreasing again. Well, I hopefully too are going to take one out of the population pool, big buck in Western Wyoming this year. And, uh, you know, I, I know Miles, you're going to be doing your part on keeping the, the white-tailed deer population down in the Sheridan area. So um, let's switch gears a little bit now and uh, talk about black-tailed deer. Uh, we've got two species of black-tailed deer. We've got the Sika black-tailed deer that's found in Alaska and parts of uh, British Columbia. And then we have the Colombian white uh, black-tailed deer that's found in Oregon and Washington and California and actually on, on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. Um, these, these deer are basically forested deer. Um, so you can guess that it's really hard to get an estimate. I think Kodiak Island is in Alaska and some of the other introduced populations or areas where they're, they're more out in the open. But when you look at things that affect them, um, you know, Southeast Alaska, for example, we have a tremendous amount of uh, previously harvested areas that the second growth is into a situation that they call stem exclusion, where basically no sunlight is hitting the floor. So there's no groceries on the ground. And then, of course, you have their winter, their winter habitats often is along the beach. So if you get heavy snows and you can find those animals along the beach, then the bears and the wolves have a much easier time of picking them off or the hunters picking them off. So they really get a little mm -hmm. bit different, but I think the big thing in, in most of uh, forested Alaska is, you know, timber management practices, forestry practices, but they also deal with, you know, winners and, and two, three critters uh, for, for the lower 48, the Columbia blacktail deer. Um, it probably has a lot to do with how we manage the forested habitats. And, you know, Jim, I don't know if you can speak to that, but having been to Oregon and Washington and seen how, you know, the private timberlands are managed separately, differently than the, the public timberlands and some of the, the clear cutting that has happened, I can only imagine that, you know, getting that amount of browse and young growth uh, with the decline in timber harvest is extremely important in maintaining those populations. It is. It's it's comp the timber harvest is complex. That's certainly. I mean, in, in the Southwest deserts, we worry about water distribution. They're not going to worry about water distribution for Sitka blacktails on the Southeast Alaska um, islands. But timber harvest is a big deal, and it's and it's complex even within that ecoregion because in the northern part of that, having a closed canopy forest and mature forest helps intercept some of that snow and allows them more mobility on the forest floor to move around and, and find food because the the canopy intercepts it. But you come just south a little bit, like you said, in the Colombian blacktail country, 
and they're a little bit more like mule deer where you open that canopy up and then you expose the forest floor to sunlight and you get a lot more food, a lot more shrubs on there. So that's one of the things that Mule Deer Working Group deals with is getting all the experts together in a room and we start talking about things like this and you find those little nuanced differences and we're able to talk through that and kind of develop that into habitat guidelines or things that we produce. And that's the value of, of having that group together and producing that information. So looking at the range-wide status, um, we're get, we get a lot of questions. Um, Steve, before, are you, are you going to leave Blacktail now? I was Can just going to, you know, I, Miles, where I was going to go to is so, so, so if you're Joe Q public or Jane Q public, how can you use this uh, status, you know, this range wide status to better understand what's going on? And if you're a hunter, how do you need to look at this? And, you know, more importantly, Miles, where I wanted to go with this is how we look at it as an organization. Well, you know, um, I, w I wanted to kind of, we'll talk about it as the whole organization, but as while we're on blacktail deer, because they're kind of unique and, and out in California, and we hope to move to Oregon and Washington with our stewardship um, habitat initiative. And we're, we're doing exactly what Jim said. We're, we're going in, we're not clear cutting, uh, but, but with all the fires in California, Cal fire and the U S forest service have come to us and said, we need to, we need to, work on our forest. We need some management. We need to get our, our forest back in healthy condition. And that's benefiting black-tailed deer and a lot of other wildlife. And where we're going in and we're opening up some of that canopy, opening up those, getting rid of some of those uh, trees and uh, and oh, getting browse back in. And, and so I think in the next three to five years, I think we're going to see a real explosion of blacktail deer in, in Northern California. I, that's my, that's my hope. That's my goal. Uh, because I think we're, we're being very aggressive there. These projects are huge um, and they're long-term. So uh, maybe even more longer than that, but uh, it, I think that's important that, that you've got certain conditions that, that that's where, where we come in as an organization is we can help, you know, either move that habitat condition back a ways or whatever, you know, go in there and, and figure what that area needs. And that's where a lot of these, like we talked earlier, a lot of the, the migration corridor studies are, are, are pinpointing where we need to do the habitat work and whether it's a, um, a stewardship on the forest or a, um, a project on the BLM removing pinion juniper. These status reports really help us as we, burrow down into each individual state, each individual local chapter we have with MNDF. What are what are the needs of that of that deer herd in that area? And and really all of this information helps us tremendously. Well Miles, you know, you mentioned something there. It really allows us to see some outcomes. All too often the only thing we can measure is an output because we don't follow things through time or we don't piece things together so that, you know, A plus B plus C equals you know, more deer, we end up doing that random act of kindness or that postage stamp approach. And, and what you've mentioned in the stewardship projects, it allows us to work with the forest service to do things that they couldn't get done without our help. And it allows us to address our mission, which is helping out black deer and mule deer and their habitats, plus giving us the capacity to do more and more and more through getting better and building capacity and building partnerships and you know and addressing those needs where they're at rather than trying to guess on whether we're going to have a positive outcome that we actually have we know we're going to have a positive outcome given you know a major fire or some other event that can't be predicted and and i think you know that's exciting for me because you know the 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 the, the fact of the matter is is we don't do as much out on our public lands or even on our private lands as we did because we have fewer staff or we have fewer dollars or there's too many roadblocks. And I know Miles, some of the policy issues that you and I've worked on with, with trying to get the, uh, the BLM and the forest service to be able to do habitat projects a little bit easier from their process is going to pay some great dividends here in the very near future. You're hundred percent right. I mean, um, the, the, the landscape has really changed. I think with, with our organization growing as we have and with, you know, and what I think Jim made this uh, statement earlier is that for a long time, we all just said, well, the federal agencies will take care of the habitat. They're the landowner. They're the, they'll, they'll take care of the habitat. And then 
And in a lot of cases, and I'm not criticizing them because they have a lot of multiple use objectives and other pressures, but um, I think the state wildlife agencies who deer and elk are their revenue source really said, we've got to start focusing on what we can do for habitat and we're going to put dollars in or we're going to get money from um, the federal agencies. I know New Mexico gets a lot of money uh, to do habitat work uh, through their wildlife agency. Other states do. Utah has the watershed initiative. But, you know, they've said, we're not going to sit back and wait. We're going to go after it. And then our job is not only to go get work done, but our job is to go to Washington, D.C., work with Congress, work with the federal agencies at the Washington, D.C. level to either change policy or programs or get funding that can come out to these programs. And and that's a whole nother um, podcast we could do, but but it all ties together. It all ties back to from Washington, D.C. down to the local deer herd, and it's, it's, it's all interconnected. Great. So we need to wrap up here. Um, Jim, why don't you give us, you know, just a final closing statement on how you think, you know, this range-wide status uh, can be used to inform people whether they hunt or not and, you know, uh, where we can find it and, you know, how folks might be able to continue to track what the Mule Deer Working Group is doing. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we have a website that's maintained pretty actively in with the other working groups and committees as part of WAFWA, which is the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. They're uh, they're revamping the website, but that shouldn't affect um, the Google ability, so to speak, of getting to the Mule Deer Working Group. We also maintain a, a pass-through URL that's just, as I mentioned before, all one word, muledeerworkinggroup.com. And if you go to that, it'll it'll direct you to the the Waffle website. And and once you get to that site, the Mule Deer Working Group site, we've got uh, a tab for publication. We have just about everything we produced in 20 years, all available in PDFs. And if you're in a local chapter and want to do some habitat work or just a hunter that wants to learn more about what's going on with mule deer conservation, there is, there's tons of information there that will help you uh, see how agencies manage wildlife and, and 33 fact sheets that are up there with all kinds of issues on predator competition with elk, winter feeding, uh, long-term habitat changes, um, water fences, migration, all kinds of topics in, in a, a easy-to-read two-page little fact sheet format. So I'd encourage everybody to go to that website, and one of those documents is the status document that we've been talking about. And the 2020 will be up by the time this is uh, posted, and you'll be able to read through and see what we were talking about here. And, and I think the value of that document and these kind of documents are are to be more informed as a hunter, but also if you're involved as you should be in a local conservation group like an MDF chapter, it'll give you ideas and give you guidance and guidelines on what you can do in your area to improve uh, mule deer uh, on the ground, mule deer habitat. Great. Thanks, Jim. Miles, any any parting words of wisdom on, on this and the approach that we take at MDF? Um, yeah. One, I want to thank Jim for joining us together, and I, I thought he would shamelessly uh, promote his book, Deer of the Southwest, uh, which is, which is if, if you hunt in the Southwest, it's a great book to learn a lot about those desert deer that uh, really, really behave differently. But Jim, thank He doesn't need to plug it because you plugged it for him. It, it's actually out of print. Okay. It's actually out of print because it's been so successful. Yeah. So you can't buy one anyway. All right. So, but... Uh, you know, his leadership at the Mule Deer Working Group is just, it it's amazing the amount of work they've put in and stuff and, and the publications and things that you know, help uh, no matter if you're, if you're an average Joe off the street or if you're a, fel- a biologist somewhere just coming in new working on deer, um, there's lots of information there. And so it's a great partnership and uh, we're great, uh, grateful to host their meeting uh, at least once a year at the at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. But, but you know, I just you know these just the more that we can let hunters know, the more we can get the word out about deer in their state or their local area helps us. You know, helps us fundraise, helps us uh, fundraise to to do projects and and in areas, and helps us to be more efficient with our our members dollars as we go out and uh, on also look for partners to leverage those dollars many times over. So this is, this is great information for all of us. Yeah, it's absolutely a partnership. Yeah. Miles at MDF support and, and having Steve helping us along the way in the builder working group has been really critical and really appreciate that. 
All right, Jody, are you still there? We haven't heard from you much, but I know that you've been sitting back and just listening, soaking all this in. Um, any uh, last words of wisdom from from your perspective on how this can be used? Uh, what anything you heard today, and you know, really help me close this up. I I'm going to say that we're at about an hour of talking, and we don't usually go that long, so I'm not going to say any more. So until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda. Please support the Mule Deer Foundation. Go to muledeer.org, sign up, support, give us a call, give us your ideas. You can also weigh in at uh, podcast at muledeer.org or in the comment section on the social media to let us know about this episode and any uh, future episodes or any critiques or advice you'd like to give us. So, and with that, uh, this is Steve Belinda and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.